This man's definition of a working actor, but he's much more than that. We're going to talk to John Marshall Jones next. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Live. Conversations. Right. Hey, I like break it down. Little chair dance. Hey, that's right. Which is what you do when you get fully grown. <laughs> that's right. Just you dance in the chair. Work it out. Hello, you guys. We're welcome to Black Hollywood Live's conversations here on BlackHollywoodLive.com. We're doing a little soul to soul, back to life, back to reality, and there's a lot of reality going on. So we're gonna talk about that later. Hi, I'm James Lott Jr. I'm your host of this episode. I'm excited to be here today. Uh, you can follow me at James Lott Jr. all over the interwebs. Yeah, I said interwebs. I did. And my guest today, I mean, seriously, seriously, when I was looking up his credits, it went on for about five or six pages. He's been in everything. Just about everything. Think about it. Just about everything. I'm going to go ahead and name just like, just like one one hundredth of what he's been in that many of you guys always talk about when I mention he's going to be on my show. Smart Guy, The Truth, Criminal Minds, China Beach, which I loved. Pretty Little Liars, In the Cut. That's just, that's only just, like, that's just like six or seven things he's done out of a, a thousand. Uh, he's also the creator of the Mastering the Audition. And he has a movie coming out called The Last Revolutionary. I'm so excited to have him here today. He's a great guy, John Marshall Jones. Thank you. Thank Hello, you, sir. James. Thank you. Welcome. Now, we're going to start off because I actually have met Taj Mahari. He was on my show. I do the Baby Daddy after show, and he's on Baby Daddy. He plays okay. Tucker, and he's a, what a great young man, first of all. Yeah. Talked to him before and after. Just delightful, great guy. Good hit on his shoulders. And because you're here, and you and a lot of people, when I mentioned you're coming on, of that age group, like, oh, my God, it's the dad from Swagger. So we're going to show a clip of you and Taj back in the day. Okay. Looks like I'm mastering the audition. Oh, not that one. The other one. May I have a moment, please? Oh, my God. Was it two of the same link? No, they're, two, they're different. They're different. Oh, okay. Live television. I love it. It's... What's your... But meanwhile, while we're getting waiting for that, I was going to ask you, um, how was it with that... That show was a hit, and it was early on in the in the... And the TV of the 90s. Well, here here was the interesting. It was an interesting time because uh, there was a new model for how television would work, which was that uh, a syndicator would um, purchase programming time in multiple markets on individual syndicated stations. Yeah. So Fox began with that, and the way to reach the audience in urban markets was, of course, to do black shows. Mm -hmm. So Fox did a series of black shows until they built Mm -hmm. up enough of an audience to go mainstream, and then they kicked the black folks out. And then WB and UPN, UPN, and together they merged and become CW. Yes. But WB and UPN each had their own sort of black Mm -hmm. network kind of thing Mm -hmm. going on. So... We recognized at the time that there was a window for getting in, doing a black show before they got enough of an audience to go mainstream got it. and kicked us out. Got it. So um, so it was a special time because we were on, Steve Harvey oh, was on, so Jamie Foxx was on, the weigh-ins right. were yes. on. Yes. We were all kind of on one black night. Right. And it was, uh, it was a special, exciting time in black Hollywood because... Yes. Um, all of those shows, in their own way, 
portrayed uh, black people in a positive light. Yes. You know, it's not... Now we have love and hip-hop Hollywood, (laughs) you know, which is what young people are looking at to see what they're supposed to aspire to. Yes. But during that time, you know, it was much more uh, traditional and traditional African-American values that were reflected in the shows that were on the air. And then a strange thing happened in that WB, for a number of reasons, none of which were the quality of the show or the ratings of the show. Okay decided to cancel the show. Mm. Disney was the producing studio, which also had Disney Channel. Yes. So rather than telling the audience that the show's been canceled, they just canceled it quietly and moved it to the Disney Channel. Ah, okay. So most people at that time didn't even realize the show had been canceled. They only knew that now it was coming on Uh, Disney Channel. Okay, got it. Disney goes to over 170 countries across the globe. And so Smart Guy became their number one hit for two years running. It became a worldwide hit. Mm -hmm. And it took that image uh, of an African-American genius Mm -hmm. and also the image of a stable African-American father figure Mm -hmm. around which, around a loving African-American family. Mm And it took that to 170 countries worldwide. Mm -hmm. And so people who never had a chance to interact with African Americans or who only saw African Americans through music videos Mm -hmm. now had a balancing influence in the images that were projected to them. So that's something that, um, that to this day I'm very, very proud of. And I'm very, very proud of Taj and his parents... Um, were very, very involved in making sure that he didn't become one of those Hollywood kids. Mm-hmm. His father had him out there playing football, which, of course, he ended up going to college on yeah. a scholarship. Yeah. But when I saw him, he was a little 10, 11-year-old boy yeah. playing with 12- and 13-year-olds. Yeah. And I saw them try to twist his head off one day. And I was like, yo, hey, hey, yeah. hey, hey, Pops, I need to talk to you. Because I'm trying to pay for stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't have smart guy get his head twisted off. I was genuinely alarmed at this whole situation. But it ended up that it was really good for him and yeah, comes from a great that. family. And Yeah, the and, sisters and all, they're all good. They're all yeah, good. they're all, they're all. <laughs> I like that. Uh, marvelously unaffected. That's what it seems like. By the yes. affectations of Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, even Taz was like, he was just like a regular guy. Yeah, he's a regular he guy. He was so, oh my God, he was so friendly and, and warm. Um, you're right, because back then, you know, we also had the wonderful, my one of my idols, Robert Townsend, had Parenthood. Mm-hmm. I mean, which one we had people who had, we had... Oh, what happened? Where all the black shows go? Like, I mean, the '90s, we had a ton of them. Not even just WB and UPN. We had, I mean, we had My Wife and Kids and uh, Birdie Max. We had all these shows that were like showing black families. The window closed. Moesha, all that. Yeah, the window closed. It'll open again. It's starting to now, I guess. Yeah, everything is um, is cyclical. That's true. And what'll happen is we're going to have a black show come on that becomes a phenomenon. Mm, okay. And then you'll have a hundred networks rush in to copy it. That's true. Yes. And so um, during those times where you're at a lower lull is where you have to really um, become creative about as an artist about how you're going to, number one, survive economically. Yes. Number two, continue to stay relevant. 
And number three, continue to work on your art. Yeah. So it's a challenge, but, you know, as you see by myself and, and many other uh, African-American actors that are, um, that are my age, that I've known in the business for 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. that part of, uh, part of the business that is so important is your willingness and determination to develop longevity. Which means you might not be the biggest star in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. but you can continue to work and make a living and be impactful um, as long as you can wrap your head around what's going on around you at that particular time. And do you have to be okay with giving up that, or do you give up that dream that you'll be, if you want that big known stuff, do you have to give that up on some level? Or do you always kind of have it, like, it can still happen anytime, or? Yeah, I think that the important thing to understand is that that big known thing is, you know, the biggest star in Hollywood, the Will Smith, the Eddie Murphy, mm-hmm. um, that is something that is created by Hollywood yeah. to sell their product. Mm-hmm. And it's not the only thing that's going on. Right. And what happens is most people get caught up into thinking they have to have that job. Yes. And that nothing else will suffice. Right. So for me, um, I had my 50th birthday. Okay. And now I have I live in a you know not the biggest house in Hollywood but mm-hmm. you know I live on a hill with a view of the ocean okay. and you know hot tub, you know hot tub in the backyard <laughs> and you know the whole you know kind of <laughs> black Hollywood thing right <laughs> yes. I've got it going on <laughs> yes but I wasn't enjoying it because mm-hmm. I was thinking that I should be doing more. Oh, okay. And I walked into my backyard one day and I said, wow, JJ, so if this is as good as it gets, okay, how'd you do? And I looked around. You did good. And I was like, shit, you did great. <laughs> you did right. great and you're about to miss it, thinking that you should have done better. Yes. And that's when... My life, mind, spirit changed because I was able to accept that where I am is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And the moment that I accepted that, um, I accepted the idea of plenty mm-hmm. rather than accepting the idea of lack. Same You're exact speaking stuff. You're speaking it, right? Yes, yes. Same stuff. The yeah. stuff didn't change. Right. My attitude about it changed. Yeah. What I didn't realize is that when my attitude about that changed, it's not just about that. The attitude affects everything in your life. Mm -hmm. So when I accepted the plenty that I was, then all kinds of plenty started coming. Because now I was thinking in terms of accepting abundance rather than accepting lack and what I don't have. Same stuff different attitude changed my life god that's beautiful it's funny because i know for me and this is just my my kind of my my thing with this is that i have a garden i have a, I have a huge backyard and um i live in south la and it was huge i was this huge backyard it was just like i remember one day i was just staring at it i was like you know i own my home and i'm just staring at this yard and then i was like i got this idea i want a garden so I bought a few plants first, and I bought a, a sweet potato plant. I did all this, like, just little, little by little. And then after about six, seven months of doing this, and I started seeing stuff grow, literally seeing it grow, like I said, off camera, it, it calmed me down. Mm-hmm. When you have to plant something and tend to it, 
It's like, Ooh. it really does teach you a lot about yourself. Ooh. And that's what changed my life. I have a garden. And my, all my fans, you know, they, they love, I always post pictures, and I, was like, I have some bougainvillea growing over here, and tangerines there. And I was, and I just, but I'm so proud of it, because it did give me back something mm-hmm. that, I, that I didn't have when I was younger. It was like, now I see why my grandmother had a garden. She was from Louisiana. And I see why she had a garden. She was always out there every other day. Mm-hmm. Picking the weeds and getting the figs off the tree. It's like, and why she was always so happy mm-hmm. to do it, and then cook it, and then have food I make with my stuff. Right, right. But starting that little seedling of starting to, to plant something and actually tend to it, make sure it's okay, make sure the water's happening, the soil, the sun's okay. It really does calm you down and see things, everything else differently. Well, one of the things that it does is it takes the focus off of you. And all of those, we have sixty to 80,000 thoughts that go through our head I believe it. every day. I believe it. And the ability to calm that process is where peace of mind comes from. Your mind is constantly in a storm. And nobody teaches us how to not be in a storm. No. So things like that, things like gardening and... Um, and having to actually put a seed in the ground and pour water on it, and nothing's happening. So you have to develop patience. Yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes. You have to develop an attention to detail because the weeds will come up and overtake your garden, and it can happen in seven days. You leave your garden alone for seven days, Mm -hmm. you come back out, the weeds are all over. Mm -hmm. And that's how our minds and our attitudes are. Yes. So if if we accept an attitude, let's say you're working on a set and something happens, and you accept an attitude of resentment, Mm -hmm. and you don't pull that weed out of your mind, you let it grow for a week or two, next thing you do is blow up at somebody. Now, they're not affected by that, right? right? You blew up at them. The chemical, the emotions that had to build up in your body in order for you to get that kind of energy to blow up at somebody, they're still in your body. They're not in theirs. That's true. And they'll walk away from this and may not even remember what happened. If yep. you talk to them four or five years later, mm-hmm. say, really? Yeah. But... You have the chemicals of resentment in your body that now have become an attitude. So every time you think about it, you can recreate those chemicals. Mm -hmm. Those chemicals are poison, and they're killing us. They are. And so it is very, very important. The idea of forgiveness is not weakness. It is understanding what your longevity is really all about. And that is not holding on to things that are past, P-A-S-S-E-D. They are past. They don't exist anymore. And so you don't give them any energy. You forgive, which means to let those things go and focus on the moment at hand. Well, I'll tell you, I I learned this on on Oprah years ago. It changed my life. It clicked when she said that forgiveness is giving up the hope the past could be any different. Yes, Yes. Once I heard that, it changed everything. My relationships, my work, everything. I was like, oh, that makes sense because what has happened already happened. You really can't do... No, even if somebody says, I'm sorry that I did this to you 10 years ago, it doesn't really matter. Right. It's already done. It's, it's already happened. You just need to forgive anyway. And forgiveness is for yourself anyway, not for another person in the first place. It's for you. It's for you. 
that was a hard concept to, 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 to grasp at first, though. Like, what does that mean? It's for me. Like, I'm like, what, what do you mean? What is that? And I, and I got it. I was like, oh, now I get it because it's inside of me. I can create cancer in there yes. if I don't forgive myself for my parts in anything. It hit me. Something hit me. There you go. Got it. Now we're going to switch gears. Just I can talk to you forever right now about this stuff. But just for a second, now we have the clip up. So we're going to show the clip of you guys together. We're going to continue, going to continue this whole conversation. Wow, it's our house. It's your house. So go ahead and show it. Oh, my goodness. Miss Krupp just used to pick food out of her teeth, stare at the clock, and mumble about tenure. <laughs> Boy, Mr. Harrison sounds like a terrific teacher. He is. He even arranged for us to go to the planetarium and look through the Zeiss refracting telescope this Saturday. But we're going camping Saturday. Oh, I completely forgot. You forgot? Oh, I want to go camping. I really do. The last thing I want to do is hurt your feelings. It's just an incredible opportunity. <laughs> oh, well... I understand. You know, when those opportunities come up, you just got to grab them. So that means I got to miss out on dragging my butt up Hogback Mountain, sleeping on a half-inflated air mattress, and going to the bathroom in front of a deer. <laughs> so be it. Thanks, Dad. So I want to say, it's just, I mean, and I, now I'm having a full circle because now I'm sitting here next to you. I sat with him. He still looks like he's 12 years old in real life today, but um, he's yeah. like, I have a mustache. I said, you have a mustache. Oh, my God. But when you look at stuff like that, because you're one of the few dads that was on TV that wasn't the bumbling dad, it wasn't the you know like oh my god I don't know what I'm doing I'm kind of I'm kind of hapless and but I still send a message. You were like a strong African American. I won't get it out. African American father on television. That was on purpose. Okay. And the writers of Smart Guy, uh, Dan and Kalis and Bob Young, were both fathers. Um, they were very open to my concerns. Oh, good. Okay. Most of the scripts came back without the dad being, you know, a bumbling fool. Good. But periodically one would come in and I would go back and I would have a sit down <laughs> with him. And this is this is very important in how you deal with people that are your bosses or have more status okay. than you do. Because um, for you young people out there, the thing you don't want to do is make them have to show you that their status is higher than yours. Yes. So the way that I would deal with Bob and Danny was to say, hey, listen, I'd like to talk to you guys. I have some concerns. I would voice my concerns, and then at the end of it would say, but you know what? You guys have put together an incredible show. You've got great judgment. I know you guys will make the right decision. And so thank you for listening. And I'd leave. And... 95% of the time, they would just make the change. I like that. You know, and it so it worked out that that by voicing my concern and then addressing to them that I understand what the pecking order is here, and whatever you come up with, I'm on your team. But like these that. are my concerns. I like that. Um, allowed them to then be able to make changes without losing status. And... Uh, and so it was a very collaborative effort in making sure that this African-American father would be somebody that people could look up to. And, uh, and I'm very proud of that work. Because, and you should be. I, I just, because I just, I mean, not, no offense to any other show. I liked a lot of the shows that are on TV. And, and even like Blackish today, I enjoy Anthony Anderson's performance. I think it's funny. But he does come across sometimes as the hapless kind of father who inadvertently sends a message or there's a message or something where like you um, 
uh, there's another father's thing just a minute ago. But you guys, you guys were not that. You just you were very much just like the straight laced good father who would listen and would you know that we need that we didn't see portrayals of on television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, that Blackish, which I really enjoy as a show, me too, is moving more toward today's style of comedy. Yeah. So the single camera style of comedy has a little more to do with uh, with the lead character uh, dealing with a bit of humiliation. Yes. And if you look at Modern Family, if you look at the hit shows now, the lead character deals oh, yeah. with, yeah. with uh, a bit of self-deprecation, mm-hmm. a bit of uh, humiliation, but then learns his way through to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so the style of comedy has changed because the technology of it has changed. Mm-hmm. And they needed to deliver comedy in a way that makes it fresh and updated rather than looking like, you know, you're still making the same thing from 1990. Yeah, yeah. Because with the advent of cable, satellite, and internet, you better have something fresh on or people are, you know, they're, they're gone. God, nowadays you got Netflix, Hulu, yeah. PlayStation yeah. has series. I mean, like not Amazon has series. I mean, I mean, you think about how long you'll stay on a station if it doesn't interest you. It's really about true. five seconds. Yeah, it's true. Because there's another thing right away, and now there's a uh, an iPad sitting right next to you mm-hmm. that you can pick up and start scrolling through. And you know, like you said, Netflix, Hulu, mm-hmm. or you have the TV has internet on yes, it. They do, yeah. So you just hit another button, and now you're at Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, mm-hmm. and you can find whatever it is that interests you by typing in the title. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so television, network television, has to be uh, fresh all the time. Or they lose their audience. Yeah, that's very true. Now, speaking of television and everything, I'm going to ask you, I'll call this speed round, for folks who have credits that go longer than my arm. Oh, God, don't ask me nothing I don't remember. Yeah, well, if you don't remember, just say you don't remember. That's why I told a guy I interviewed yesterday, he had like a, like you, all these credits. So you don't remember it or just kind of, that's fine. But I can ask too many, but it's a few. Um, Bosch. Loved it. Ty, Titus Willover, tell me about him a little bit. Um, Titus is an actor's actor. He is not intimidated by anybody or anything, and he'll stand right in the middle of the storm and express his character, which means that you, standing across from him, can fully express what you're trying to do because Titus is not going to be afraid of how he looks while you're doing it. It's a very, very rare thing. Wow. Because I, I love him as an actor. It's just, I, just, I can only imagine. Um, okay, now, some of these things you, were, you did, they were small roles, but I see if you have any kind of remembrance of any of them. Good Morning Vietnam. Loved it. My first movie. Your first movie. Yeah, well, my first movie was a movie called Tapeheads. That sounds familiar. Yeah, actually. it was with John Cusack and Tim Robbins. Okay, Tom Cusack, okay. Little independent film, yeah. really, really funny. And I was getting ready to go back to Chicago. Okay. I come from Chicago to love do Love Chicago. I was going to go back to Chicago, go back to my job after doing this movie <laughs> yes. of working in a telephone sales boiler room oh, you were, <laughs> because I had spent all the money that I made oh, on tape heads. I love it. Hanging love out. Because <laughs> that's what you do when you're 23. You spend that money. Yes, you do. That's right. And before I could get out of L.A., my agent called me and told me, hey, you got another movie. It's Good Morning Vietnam. You're leaving for Bangkok tomorrow. 
and it was for three months. Wow. And what an experience. Robin Williams was... Oh, may he rest in peace. Uh, may he rest in peace was such a, an extraordinary and giving person as well as actor. But there was a, a day that I'll never forget that we're, um, we had all these extras in full gear and rucksacks. And it was 110 Ooh. degrees or something like that. And they had to march up this runway about 100 yards and go back. And they were going back and forth. And we were marching at the beginning of the scene. And then we would go off camera. And I would run right over and, you know, yeah. find an umbrella. Because they didn't have air conditioning, but you could at least stand in the shade. Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. And I was complaining about how hot it was. Okay. And then I looked over, and Robin was entertaining the Thai extras in this sort of, uh, you know, without language. He was entertaining them and making them laugh when they didn't speak English. Wow. And he stood out there... All day, not all day, but for as long as it took. So maybe 90 minutes, two hours, something like that. And he kept entertaining them and kept them fresh the whole time. And I went from feeling like, oh, well, I'm a movie actor now to feeling that big, watching the star of the movie do that. And it, it taught me that the bigger that you get in this business, the more humble you need to become. Mm. And that all of those people that are working in the smallest jobs are the ones that make your movie great. So you have to acknowledge that and take care of those people on any set you're on. Because those little things are the difference between a good project and a great project. Wow. And I learned that from Robin That's Williams. That's amazing. White Man Can't Jump. <sighs> Man, that was an awesome <laughs> film. <laughs> so that was Wesley Snipes yes, and Woody Lee Harrelson. I, I've never yeah. seen the theater. So the scene that we shot, um, that uh, the sequence that I was in, yeah. um, was playing basketball at Venice Beach. I love it. I lived in a uh, apartment in Santa Monica, right oh, on right the there. beach. Okay, right there. So I could get up in the morning, ride <laughs> down <laughs> the bike path. <laughs> yes, that bike path. Yes. Go and play basketball. Oh now God. that part lasted for about three days, wow. although it took about ten days to do the scene. Okay. At the point where I leave, there was this beautiful young lady named Sarah Stavro. Okay. And Sarah was fine. <laughs> and Sarah was playing my girlfriend. Okay. And so when I left the court, <laughs> I went over and laid down on her lap. I laid my head on her lap. Okay. And because of the way it was shot, we had to do that for seven days. Oh. So I spent seven days. Okay. Getting paid. Getting paid. To lay my head in this beautiful young lady's lap. One of the best jobs I ever had. It's all about gratitude. You can't can't complain. How are you going to complain? Yeah, no, it was... Hello. It was awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's a great story. Um, Con Air. Con Air. Terrific piece. Great movie. I love that movie. Um, Terrific piece. They they hired me to come out for a month to Utah to fly this helicopter yes <laughs> and you know we're supposed to be john cusack was in the helicopter yeah. with me who's an old friend of mine and we're supposed to fly around and chase con air <laughs> yes but the director was going over budget right. they were over budget <laughs> by 20 million dollars oh my god so they said well where can we make up this 20 million dollars that we'll start with you and so they broke my deal oh 
and decided to shoot it in front of a green screen <laughs> for a day. Oh, dang. And But they ended up paying me for a couple of weeks. Okay, so that was... Okay. So... I took a couple of weeks, but I was like, yo, you $20 million over over budget, yeah. and you starting with me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that about, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, why are you starting with me? <laughs> what did I do? I ain't yeah. making $20 million. <laughs> I love that. Um, Frank's Place. Frank's Place. Tim Reed. Awesome, awesome piece. That was my, uh, my first television show. And uh, I came out here, created this character named Gregory Dooleen, big country boy. <laughs> yes. And I did one episode, and I went over to the executive producer. Forget his last name. It was his first name was Hugh. Yeah. And I said, Hugh, I'm fresh off the boat from Chicago. I don't know anything about television. Would it be okay with you if I just came and watched? Oh, wow. And he said, yes. Okay. And so for probably about a month six weeks or so i just came to the set and watched what was going on wow and learned so So much you know just watching and some people were okay with some of the actors were like hey what are you doing here yeah yeah, sure like you try to take my job but there were people on the crew though that came over and really schooled me on how things work wow and there was a an actor a veteran actor named lincoln kilpatrick and uh and I went over to Lincoln one day. I said, Mr. Kilpatrick, listen, I'm a, I'm a fan of yours as well. I just want to know, I'm, you know, I'm fresh here. Is there any piece of wisdom that you could share with me? And he said, yeah. Everything's going to be all right as soon as you learn how to get out your own way. And That's so smart. That's smart. And it went. Oh, yeah. I was like, huh? Yeah, right. And about 20 years later, <laughs> yeah, 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 I was sitting yeah. in a diner and went, Oh, damn! That's what he was talking about. I could have learned this 20 years ago. Why didn't Why didn't he just say? It's like, yeah, he did. He did. He did. He you did. just didn't have enough going yes. on yet to understand this diamond no, right. that he handed you. He handed you, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, good, good, really like good that. experience. That. And my show that I cried to every episode, China Beach. China Beach. Uh, Incredible cast. I mean, the cast of that show, everyone was amazing. Yeah. Terrific cast. Um, Dana Delaney uh, is just a, a heartbreaker that beautiful eyes and beautiful yes. smile and, and just as sweet as she could be. Um, China Beach was a show where I learned something about Hollywood. Okay. So Tell us. Tell us. Uh, I did this character, Fluke Johnson. Yes. And Fluke was the guy that could get you stuff. Yes. You know, yes. so, uh, German beer, uh, Japanese hoes, all at a wholesale price. Okay, so they like the character enough to bring him back. Yeah, I remember you were saying Okay, yeah. so I come back and they say, uh, okay, so uh, listen, uh, just so you know, um, you know, Fluke's going to get killed in this episode. We, you know, we didn't want to make a big deal out of it. And I say, okay, no problem. So I go on and do the episode, and we don't have my death scene. No. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Okay. So I go home. The episode comes on. Now, mind you, I had been teaching, which I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later. Yeah. And teaching my students how you have to have integrity around your work and you know, you make sure that the images that you put out there are valuable images for the African-American community and blah, 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 blah. 
So the episode comes on. Yes. And Fluke Johnson has gotten killed by the KKK element in uh, in the racial uh, tension episode, and they found his body burned to a crisp what? on top of a cross. <laughs> and I was like, wow. <laughs> they got me. Yeah. They got me. <laughs> and I never saw, it was John Socrate Young was the yeah. executive yeah, producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never saw him again. <laughs> I love it. And I was like, "Wow!" Because I, you know, I was going to tell him about. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because I didn't, you know, I don't care. <laughs> but yeah, they got me. So I learned something. And, yes, and what you learn is that you do your best, but you're not in control of everything. Yes. So you do your best to put out the best images yep. that you can to stay within your own sense of integrity. Yeah. Um, but some things you are not in control of, and you got to keep it moving. Yeah. Because Hollywood is about longevity. It is. And that TV show that you think is so important is entertainment for the moment. Yep. And next week, there's another episode, and nobody remembers what you did. Mm-hmm. That's true. They only remember if you're on every week. Right. Then they don't remember all the episodes, they just remember you. Mm-hmm. So that thing that I thought was so devastating. It was gone in a week, yeah, and nobody remembered. Makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you also, but I still remember. He's not gonna forget, folks. He ain't gonna forget. <laughs> he forgets. Oh, I love it. Um, <laughs> you also did uh, an episode of Roseanne. I did do Roseanne. My girl Roseanne. What comes to mind? You think about that? What comes to mind? Um, it was Tom Arnold's first episode. Oh, and he came on. Okay, yes. Yeah. And Tom Arnold was going through his addiction with cocaine. Wow. And so he was on the set. It was a cold, cold, because TV sets are, they keep them really cold. Yeah. They're like refrigerated. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And he was bright red and sweating like a pig. And... Roseanne had to clear the set a couple times because Tom wasn't performing yeah. and people were starting to talk out yeah. loud. Yes. Right? So the day came for the shoot and Tom could not put together more than two lines at a time. Dang. So they had to do a line and then cut and then do a line and then cut oh my and God. then do a line and then cut and then do a line and then cut. God bless America. Okay. When the show came on, he looked great. No, he did look great. I remember that episode now. He looked fine. And I realized from that point, they can make anybody look good if they're committed to doing it. Mm. And later on, you know, Tom got over his addiction. Yeah, great actor. You know, moved through, became mm-hmm. kind of a well-known character mm-hmm. actor, and mm-hmm. then hosted his own television yeah. show and became very, very yeah. wealthy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so if you are... Determined enough, um, you know, then the opportunity can come to you. Yeah, that's true. And if you're willing to sleep with Roseanne Barr. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you should you should get a TV show or something out of that one. You should get wealthy out of that one, too. I, just, I, mean, I love me some Roseanne, but I'm like, okay. Um, so, so quick words for, because I want to get to your next thing. So quick words, you just, you've done so many things. You did Merrill's Place. Yeah, that was good. Different World. Uh, that was, that was a, a good one, yes. ER, did an episode. Did that was uh, uh, George Clooney before everybody knew he was George Clooney, and he did a couple of shows that I really liked that lasted a little bit of time, but not too much. Um, any day now, 
Oh, yeah. It was an excellent show. I love that show. Uh, Providence. Yeah. Love yeah, show I yeah. Love. Wow, you're going back. I am. John Doe, which is a show that I liked and didn't make it. I love John Doe. I did not yeah. make it. John Doe got, uh, got caught between the network and the executive producers. Oh, really? Um, okay. X-Files was the hit of the time, yes. and we followed X-Files. Yes, I remember that. The producers wanted to do another X-Files. The network had already moved on and wanted us to do CSI. Oh, uh, okay. And the tone of those shows is very different. Yeah, yeah. X-Files was very dark and mysterious. Yes, yes. CS, excuse, CSI is brighter and more technical. Mm-hmm. And they just battled and battled and battled and never could come to it and finally just canceled us. Like and that. then they took our sets yes. and our music and they hired for a new show a guy named David Boreans. And they made a show called Bones. Bones. Still on, yes. Which is, when you look at it, it is a forensic CSI yes. kind of show. Oh, how funny, yes. Um, that is built around what the network wanted to do. Yeah. But they had, you know, the concept of the little computer guys yeah. back in the room. They took yeah. our computer set. Oh, how funny. They took some of the music that we used. Yeah. And they made the show Bones. Uh, I didn't know that. And I remember one day, soon after we had been canceled, that I heard some music on television. I was like, oh, that's our show. So we back on, thinking we're in reruns or something, right? And I came over and looked, and it was Bones, and it was the same construction. That's hilarious. I was like, oh, okay, we ain't going to make no money. Okay, you're all Hollywood. Hollywood. (laughs) Um, You did an episode of Nip Tuck, which I used to love that show. Yep. NCIS. Yes. Still Standing. Yes. Joan of Arcadia, which I loved that show, too. That was another good show that I loved so much. Mary Steenburgen, Jason Ritter, uh, Amber Tamlin. I mean, like... They had um, they had multiple kinds of people playing expressions of God. Yes, which I loved that concept. Yeah. I loved was, that concept. It was fabulous. And, um, and I did a movie that Amber... You played, you played uh, God twice. I played God. I, I was actually on three episodes. Okay, didn't tell you. Okay. Yeah. You were on there several times, I remember. Um, but I did a movie last year that's coming out sometime this year called Paint It Black. Okay. Which was directed by Amber Tamper. Oh, okay. Okay, so good. she's directing now. Oh, good. Has kind of moved on to that next kind of level wow. of her career. Well, she comes from a father who was famous actor, and then she was also on General Hospital. I mean, she's been around for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Um, but there's more things you can look up. As I, there's just more stuff going on. He's being Pretty Little Liars, Boston Legal. I mean, just everything. Just lots, lots of just lots of work. It's just it's 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 very um, inspiring to see someone who just continually works and plays these different characters and gets to be an actor. Well, one of the things that you learn over time is that there's a difference between being a celebrity and being an actor, mm-hmm. and you know, and you're kind of conditioned to think that if you're not a celebrity, then your career was a failure. Mm, so yes. I have a certain level of celebrity, but what I'm really committed to is the craft of acting. And so sometimes that means you do something impactful, but it's, it's one scene, mm-hmm. but it's impactful to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you wrap your ego around the idea that I'm going to do this one impactful scene and keep moving to other projects or do you say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. It's only one scene. Right. And the difference between a celebrity or a personality and an actor is that an actor makes up his mind, 
that he's going to continue to work. And some things pay $5 million and some things pay $5. Right. But the work is how you define your success. I like that. And I had to learn early on that if you accept a definition of success that is defined by someone else, then you also accept that they have the ability to take that away from you. Mm-hmm. And so I had to uh, develop a definition of success Got it. for me that could not be taken away. Got it. So to me, success is being at the height of my craft every time I step on stage. I like that. And making a living at what I do mm-hmm. in a creative standpoint without having to do anything else. That's success. Um, that, to me, that's success. That's what, I, that's what I'm doing. I mean, I don't want to work at a video store or whatever. Or whatever. I mean, I want to be able to do what I do full time. Yes. Yes. I like that. Uh, we're going to show, because it's a perfect segue, we're going to show part of your clip of one of your, your acting, one of your mastering the audition um, videos. May I have, have a moment, please. Now, this is one of the most important... Love the top. Love the dashiki. Love it. A lot of times, um, we feel disempowered in the room, and we want to go in, and we want to please everybody. You can't be successful at this. You can't master this trying to please people. You have to be the one to take control of the situation. If they're behind, they're going to start reading, and if their character reads first, you could be looking down at your sheet trying to get yourself together, and they just start reading the scene. And now you're playing catch-up. And you never do catch-up to the scene, then it's over. They say, thank you. And all you can think is you walk out of there feeling like, what happened? Well, what happened is you let them take control of the scene instead of you taking control of the scene. And when you take control of the audition, you are always ready when it starts. And there is a very simple process that won't offend anybody. And that is, you get in the room, you said hello, hello to Jim, hello to Bob, how are you? You have a picture and resume, great. Are you ready? And your response is, may I have just a moment, please? And then you turn your back. Now... By taking just by, there is no casting director in the world that is going to tell you you can't have a moment to focus. But what you're really doing is you're not taking a moment to focus. You are letting them know that the scene starts when I start. So don't start reading without me. I'm not ready. The most important thing you can do is to seize your moment. Now, these are your five minutes. Do not let them start without you. May I have a moment, please? Turn your back. Gather yourself. Now you're ready. Now you're ready to begin your audition. I love it. That's so it's, it's, it's almost in the same vein as sometimes when you get into the other situations where you take a moment first. Yeah. Take that beat. Take a moment. And then, like, well, I also people, you should watch what you say. Like, take a moment before you say something. Yes. Think about it for a second. And then you can speak. Like, a lot of times you'll change what you're about to say. Right. Or your attitude can change that. One moment can change that attitude. Right. So I, I love that. Because auditions are, man, they're, so, they're scary. They're this, they're that. You're hopeful, you're this, all this stuff. And I talked to a lot of actors, and you'll talk, I'll have you talk about this, where they said they've, some people who've been in business for a long time have learned 
the audition is just like going on a roll. They go in, you do it, and you go about your business. So let's talk about that a little bit. Well, one of the things to really understand about the audition process is that it's not acting. Okay. Because the other person on the other side isn't really giving you much of anything. Okay. It is a competition in which you are called upon to perform at your highest level. Got it. So you're coming in to perform the scene. The other person is just reading. Well, right. Yeah, yeah. These are yeah. Right? But what they're reading has uh, bits of information in it that then have to affect you in how you respond. So yes. your preparation has to be not just what your lines are, but what is your response to what that other person is saying, even though they're not going to give you that when you go in there. Because uh, yeah, there's a lot of acting about being present with the other actor, and they're not really, they're yeah. just... They're just... Yeah, so you can't just go in there and yeah. think that they're going to give you what you need to okay. respond. You have to prepare to respond without them giving it to wow. you. Wow. Interesting. And prior to, there's actually three parts of the audition. It's from the time you open the door okay. until you start start speaking. Okay. Right? So they're making all kinds of decisions. Oh, about yeah, okay, yes. They're looking okay. First impression is only, you only get one chance to make That's a first true. impression. That's true. That's very true. Then there's the audition itself when you're actually reading with somebody. Then when that's over, what you do between the time you finish it and the time you get out of the room is the third stage of the audition. And can you get out of there without leaving, without damaging what you just did? I never thought that before. So you could say something before you get out the door that makes them say, oh, Oh, God, it's, yeah. And we've all done it. You know, you get excited. You had a great audition. Uh, Okay. Oh, hey, thanks. And all they're trying to find out in an audition situation really is, do I want to spend six weeks with this person? Yes, yes, yes. And they're, they're really looking at you personally. They might pick somebody who's not as good an actor because they weren't crazy in their audition. Mm-hmm. So so you're presenting something to them. You're presenting your professionalism. You're presenting um, your ability to execute the material. You're presenting mm-hmm. your ability to listen and make changes on the fly. You're presenting things. So, so you have to be ready for that presentation. Yeah. And the thing that makes that presentation work the best is confidence. Because what they buy is confidence. They will buy your confidence. Even if you're not the best actor, if you're the most confident person, then that translates to me wanting to be around you. Mm -hmm. The person who's on the other side of the table is freaking out because they've got all this stuff set up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Millions of dollars worth of stuff. They don't have the actors yet. Right. And if they don't get the actors, then all this other stuff can fall apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're freaking out, hoping that they find that person. And you, being confident, helps them to calm down so that they can say, ah, I've got this guy. Yeah. So how do you develop confidence in a pressure-packed, nerve-wracking situation? It's through uh, your ritual of preparation. Mm. So if you do kind of the same thing every time to prepare then after a while you get confident that you are prepared that's true so that when you go in you're able to be confident at least in your preparation yeah and do somewhat what you did at home got it and over time because it's a numbers game Mm -hmm. 
over time, what you start to find is that you start to be more and more comfortable and competent in the room on auditions. Mm. So you start getting more and more confident. Mm. And at a certain point, it clicks. It clicks. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's so smart. That's so smart. Um, the last thing we're going to talk about, I can talk to you forever. So before we go, yes, you can get this information. Oh, yes. Please, please tell everybody. MasteringTheAudition.com. Yes. Or you can reach out to me on Facebook, John Marshall Jones, at my John Marshall Jones fan page. And um, if you have questions about auditioning or would like to get the audio CD, okay. the audio CD is available. Yeah. And the reason why... I love this audio CD is that once you put it in your computer, it's yours for life. Yeah. And so sometimes I go back and listen to myself. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what I wasn't doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. JJ, get back to basics. Yeah. We need tune-ups every once in a while. I don't want that. Yeah, because uh, in my position in Hollywood, I still go in and audition for yeah. things. Right. And so if that's how it's going to be, Mm-hmm. If this is as good as it gets, then uh, then I'm okay with being as good as I can get every time I walk in the yeah. room. God, I, I, like seriously, I can listen to you talk all day long. Oh well, thank you, sir. Seriously, it's, it just it gets this good stuff. Because I want to get to the last thing. Of course, the last revolutionary. Mm. So go ahead and show that the picture of that uh, for the people at home. It's a project that you are also one of the producers on. Aren't you correct? correct. Is that you? One of the executives. One of the executive producers. So let's talk about that movie. Um, the Last Revolutionary is uh, a brilliant, brilliant script. It's written by Levy Lee Simon, multiple uh, award-winning writer, directed by Michael Brewer, an Emmy Award-winning cinematographer. And um, Levy and I did this play in Los Angeles. Okay. It was chosen for the National Black Theater Festival. Wow. We went down to the festival and did it and met Michael down there who okay. said, wow, this would be a great movie. And we came back and started working on the movie. Um, we did a Kickstarter campaign to raise the money. Okay. We raised our money uh, April 11th of this year. Wow. We went right into pre-production. Okay. And every dime of that money went on screen. Wow. Every dime of it. Now, here's what's so interesting and why I feel like... Uh, like this is really something touched by God. The story itself is about two former Black Panther type revolutionaries from okay. the seventies. Okay, one has become a traditional conservative suburbanite. Oh wow! Okay, and is living with the big house and the oh, picket yeah. fence and the <laughs> BMW and the beautiful wife, and he's got yeah. all the trappings. Yeah. The other is still in the same apartment he was in in 1972, <laughs> and it's filled with weapons, and he's okay. peeking out the windows waiting for the revolution to start. Oh, how interesting. So he has called his old revolutionary group and saying, hey, it's Situation Hyena. It's time for us to get down. <laughs> but one of them is a producer at NBC. Oh, and another one is a professor at NYU. <laughs> and so they call me. Okay. They say, hey, did you get a call from Mac? You know, he sounds like he's getting ready to start some stuff up. <laughs> so he, well, he don't listen to us. Yeah. So maybe you ought to go talk to him. Wow. So I fly back from New York. Yeah. To come and find him at the stronghold. <laughs> Still 
with the headband oh on, the camouflage headband, yeah. the, the black flak jacket, oh, yeah. walking around with a Glock in the apartment, peeking oh, out the windows. Wow. Except for that, everything that he thinks that we said was wrong in 1972 okay. and that we said we took an oath we would get back together when it got to this point, it's all happening. Yes, it is. So I'm trying to talk him out of it by saying, you know, that, hey, you don't really expect us to do this, right? Right. And he's looking at me like, what happened to you? Yeah, you're crazy. Like, yeah. you're crazy. Yeah, what happened to right. you? Isn't this and this and this and this going on? Haven't you seen that on the news? Aren't they attacking our president? Aren't they calling his wife by animal names? Aren't they doing this? Isn't that what's happening? Well, yeah, well, then what happened to you? Yeah. And so the film becomes an indictment of our black middle class acceptance mm. versus the knowledge in our hearts that things aren't right. Yeah. And those two have to have have to come to a meeting of the minds within this confine mm -hmm. of this stronghold wow. that also is filled with weapons. Oh my god! And yeah. so it's a um, it's a high energy, high tension, high intelligence um, piece between two very very strong characters who are committed to the moment that they're living in. And fascinating, fascinating piece. I wish I saw the play. I'm sure the play was just like amazing. Yeah, the play was amazing. Uh, it's just a different setting. I mean, it's like just a different, but it's a different way of presenting it. I have to say, though, that what we found was when you put a fourth wall in there okay. and you take it from having to project out to people okay. to having to draw the audience in with your performance, it changed the intensity and the focus of each of these characters. Mm. And it became very, very real. And mm. uh, and we had moments in there that were so intense. Well, sure. You know, that you could hear a pin drop because what was being said yes. was the absolute truth from that person's perspective. Mm -hmm. And none of their perspectives were as you would expect them to be. Mm. And um, and I think that right now we have reached a new nexus point I agree. in American history mm -hmm. where um, because of social media, the things that black people have been saying were happening for my whole lifetime oh, yeah, yeah. of the police, uh, police uh, killing people yeah. um, without cause. Is now has now become a part of uh, a part of of the American intellectual property that not only plays here but plays all around the world, and because of that, um, and because of the establishment's inability to admit or address these public wrongdoings, these are actually public executions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the establishment's inability to address these public executions has now made the public feel as if there is no law or as if the law does not apply to everyone. And if there is no law, there can be no order. 
that's where that saying, no justice, no peace, comes from. No law, no order. And so people are starting to take to mass civil disobedience. Mass civil disobedience can take many forms. It can Mm -hmm. be peaceful in terms of protest. It can be violent in terms of shooting at each other. Yeah. And so we have, as, as a culture, we have now armed our country with over 300 million guns. There are more guns than there are people. Yep. We have ratcheted up the, uh, the racial rhetoric mm-hmm. um, with this presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, not just this campaign, but the Republican establishment who is trying to downplay the racialism of this campaign um, are the ones who decided at the moment that a black president was elected that they would not do anything to help his presidency, that they would try to make sure before they helped their own constituents that they were going to get him out of office. So now their constituents are enraged because it's been eight years of them doing nothing. Their constituents are enraged, but they still have been able to point to Mexicans and Muslims and that black man and say, he's the problem, even though they're the ones that have stopped everything that he's tried to do. They're the ones that voted 17 times to vote down a jobs program. They're the ones that said, let's... uh, Let's make government smaller and downsize all of those good-paying state government jobs. They are the ones that did all of this. That wasn't Obama's, uh, uh, that, that wasn't his program. Right. And so because of that, we've had an expansion in lower-paying jobs um, that did not include them. Yeah. But if you go back 30 years or a little over 30 years... There was something called trickle-down economics, supply-side economics, Reaganomics, that started the whole thing of freezing wages and sending all of the money to the top, and then it would trickle down to you. Mm -hmm. They are the ones that voted for that. And so after 30 years of voting in... People who sent all the money to the top, then what happened? The SNL scandal happened, and they stole all that money. Then you put in a Democrat, and you said, oh, well, see, look how messed up things are. So then you put back in George Bush. And then uh, what happened? The mortgage scandal happened, and they stole all the money. And now they're ready to do it again as if the last 30 years of supply-side, trickle-down economics is not the problem. Yeah. Instead, it's not that, it's the Mexicans. Yeah, right. It's the Muslims. Right, right. It's the blacks. They're the problems, right. not the supply side, trickle down economics right. that we have been supporting for 35 years. Mm-hmm. And those same people have been stealing from you. Yeah. And yet they have convinced you that you are one of them. Yeah. That's what has been going on. It's uh, funny what you talk about. It, it must be very really interesting because I was born during the civil rights movement. So. When I was a kid, when all that stuff was happening in the late 60s, late 70s. So it's kind of, for me, it's interesting. If you were an adult or a young person of that era and you're still here today, 
a most interesting outlook to look at that and go, we're fighting for this stuff in the late 60s, early 70s, but now it's kind of rolled back, even though we have more freedoms in some ways, and there are, we have black billionaires, and we have, you know, we have the middle class, and but then some of the basic things are happening. I have, um, I was talking to seven black men. One was my brother and I, two of, my brother and I were two of them. All different ages, all different shades, all different backgrounds. And the sad part was we each had at least, I want to make this clear, at least two police stories. Yes. Yeah. I mean, all different backgrounds, all we know from 23 to my age, um, and anything in between. And we we're all, like I said, different shade from light skin to dark skin to brown. Um, doctor, lawyer, me, television, my brothers, and packing, shipping, and packing. I mean, just like all different stuff. And we had at least two stories of police stopping us for some reason. That, um, That's sad to me. It was, it was very sad to me. It's It's sad. And um, it is part of the evolution of the United States and the evolution of African Americans here. Um, one of the things that is really important here and that, and that we have not addressed yet is the United States Constitution. The Constitution has different articles and amendments. Article 6 in the United States Constitution guarantees that when a person is accused they are guaranteed the right to a speedy and public trial. So based on the Constitution, the beginning of the accusation is your interaction with the police. The policeman then makes an accusation that you have somehow operated outside of the law. The next step is your arrest. Yes. From that arrest, you are then guaranteed a speedy and public trial. When someone is killed during that process, during the process of the accusation, mm -hmm. and they are unarmed, and they are not presenting a threat to the policeman, um, that is a clear violation of Article 6 of the United States Constitution, which guarantees all United States citizens, wow. regardless of race, mm -hmm. the right to a speedy uh, and public trial. If you have not been accused which is what we are seeing on video, Yes, you have not yet been accused of a crime, then killing a person who has not been accused of a crime is a violation of Article 6 of the United States Constitution. What we have not had yet is for us to, uh, for someone to bring that to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. that that is a violation of our constitutional right. It's a constitutional violation to kill an unarmed citizen who is also unaccused. He is not yet accused mm -hmm. of a crime, mm -hmm. and he is unarmed. It is a violation of the Constitution to kill him. Now, this is of epidemic mm -hmm. proportions. Mm -hmm. It's not just black people. No, no, no. It is also white people. Mm -hmm. There have been about 100 people killed since January of 2015, unarmed mm -hmm. and unaccused. See, that's, yeah, that's not good. So... What do we do here? Well, I believe that what needs to happen is immediately upon the constitutional violation by a public servant, that public servant, that policeman, first off, needs to be immediately terminated from the police department. There's no paid leave. Right. There's no none of that. He's terminated. Yeah. The second thing is that his pension needs to immediately be transferred to the victim's family. 
so that there is no monetary gain from your inability to distinguish between a life and death situation where your life is threatened and uh, an interaction with a not yet accused and unarmed citizen of the United States. The third thing that needs to happen is that that officer needs to, that former officer needs to have a permanent mark on his employment record that discludes him from uh, being able to work in law enforcement in any state in the union for the rest of his life in a public service capacity. So if he wants to go into being a private detective, okay, yeah, he can yeah. still get employment. Yeah, yeah. If he wants to work for a security firm, he can yeah, still yeah, get yeah. employment. Yeah. What he cannot do is work in a public capacity right. uh, for uh, in a job that says that he has to um, be responsible for the safety of citizens of the United States when he has killed a citizen of the United States mm-hmm who was not yet accused and was also unarmed. There are hundreds of thousands of police that are working this job. They're working hard. Mm -hmm. It's a hard job. I found even law enforcement. Yeah, it's hard. And they're able to do this every day without killing an unarmed citizen Mm -hmm. who's not accused of a crime. Mm -hmm. If you're not able to do that, you're not of the temperament or judgment to be in a public service capacity in law enforcement. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean you're not. But it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means that you are not of the judgment or temperament. You are not inherently qualified for this job. And it often happens that you find out over time that people are not qualified for certain jobs. And those people get fired, and then they go and find another job, Mm -hmm. and then they go on with their lives. If this is a quality that someone has in the police department, Mm -hmm. that they cannot determine between a life and death situation where their life is in the balance Mm -hmm. and an interaction between a not yet accused and unarmed citizen, Mm -hmm. um, then police work is not the job for them. So they need to be barred from that in every state of the union Mm -hmm. for the rest of their lives. Then they are free to go on and find what they're good at. What they're not good at is protecting and serving the public. And so um, that's part of the discussion that we hope that the last revolutionary begins, is what is the solution to this problem? We know the problem is here, hey, we know and protesting is not solving it. Right. Protesting is just letting the establishment know that we know. We know, yeah. What we have to do now is come up with concrete solutions to which we can hold our representatives um, responsible to implement, and if not, then someone has to explain to us why. Yeah. Why is it that unarmed and not yet accused citizens of the United States are being executed point blank. Mm -hmm. And execution is called the death penalty. The death penalty can only be given after a speedy and public trial. If you have denied them a speedy and public trial, then you have denied their constitutional right 
based on Article 6 of the United States Constitution. And right. that is the discussion that we need to have. Okay. Why is that going on, and what do we need to do to stop it? And that discussion can go all the way to the Supreme Court, because yeah. that's the kind of decisions they make. Yeah. Where can they find the film? When's it going to come out, do you think? Uh, the film is not out yet, but yeah. you can find us on Facebook at The Last Revolutionary Movie. Yeah. Uh, also on Twitter at The Last Revolutionary Movie. And also on Instagram at The Last Revolutionary Movie. So keep a lookout for that, because I want to see it. Keep a lookout for that as it comes out. Yeah, it's really and, good. and also if you are a... Um, a social organization or a protest organization and you'd like to have a discussion about moving forward the idea of um, how do we hold police accountable to our uh, to holding up and uh, and recognizing our civil rights okay. based on article 6 of the constitution okay. then that's a discussion that we would be more than happy to have and whatever we can do to help this move forward, we'd be willing to work with people on. Very good. I, I like seriously. I mean, I, I have to end the show because I have to do that. But I would, I could talk to you forever. Well, we can do it again. Sometime. Yeah, like, this when the pleasure. movie comes out. Yes, come back. I'll come back. We can show some clips. We can talk about it. I'll have you. I'll have you on, on my other show called Breaking Into. So it's on this same network. Okay, that's great. what it is. A date. It's a date. I'm pointing, right. I'm pointing off camera to her. It's, it's a, a date. date. It's a date. Because I seriously, I seriously get. I mean, you should. I, cause I'm a certified life coach. You should be a life coach. Oh, well, thank you very much. You really give some really great, great, great advice that's real and humanistic. Mm -hmm. That's what I like about it. JJ, thank you so much. It's an honor. It was a very, it's an honor. Listen, and for me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, you guys, you can follow this. It's going to be on our Breaking Into, I mean, Breaking Into, our Black Hollywood Live channel on YouTube and iTunes. Go ahead and check this out. Download it. Share with everybody, because this is a good discussion. Share with everybody. I'm going to share it to all my social media platforms that James Law Jr., of course. And you're on Twitter, too. You're uh, uh, at Biggie Fries. Yes. B-I-G-G-I-E-F-R-Y-Z. So follow him too and, and comment on what you think of this, of this discussion. Thank you so much for watching us here on Black Hollywood Live. This is Black Hollywood Live's Conversations, and we'll see you next time. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Christian, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us. Info at BlackHollywoodLive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio. Instagram at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. So, well, the views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.